Kia ora, I'm Claire Kincannon. I produce and present Our Changing World, RNZ's radio show and podcast exploring the world of science. I'm based in RNZ's Dunedin office, and in July, I was able to attend the New Zealand International Science Festival, which was held in the city. One of the sold-out sessions here featured Associate Professor Susie Wiles in conversation with Director of the Centre for Science Communication, Associate Professor Jesse Baring. So for our Smart Talk episode, let's join the audience at the suitably named Petri Dish shared office and venue space in Dunedin. Kia everybody. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome you here today with this event. Um, this is part of the International Science Festival, of course, and we are very privileged and honored to have as our our guest here, Susie Wiles, Dr. Susie Wiles. I am um, Jesse Baring. I'm the director of the Center for Science Communication at the University of Otago. And of course, science communication is at the core of what our guest tonight um, is invested in, involved in, and has been doing exceptionally well um, for many years. But perhaps, um, uh, as you would, uh, would, you would imagine, over the past year and a half especially, you need no introduction, really. I think that you are quite recognizable as a character, as a figure, in terms of being on the front line of the, the current COVID crisis um, over the past year and a half or so. But I have a couple of um, just sort of key points to highlight in terms of your um, prodigious and incredibly impressive career. And I, I'd love to ask you about any sort of tips for your time management strategies. Um, <laughs> after this, but you are a microbiologist. You are the director of the Bioluminescent Superbug Lab at the University of Auckland, which is perhaps the coolest name <laughs> for a lab that I've, that I've ever heard. Um, you are a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for your work in microbiology and science communication. You are the Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize winner um, a couple of years ago. You are the supreme winner of the uh, Stuff Westpac's Women of Influence Awards for 2020. You are the New Zealander of the Year <laughs> Award winner for 2021. So, really, how do you manage to fit all this into your schedule? How, what is your day like? <laughs> it starts very early. <laughs> Well, they always say, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, I guess. I do it, how do I do it? I do it because I have an amazing support network. I have a very tolerant and understanding family. You know, th this year especially has been very hard, and so my... Your partner's my, an academic as Yeah, well. my husband and my daughter have had to pick up a lot of the slack. And, yeah, <laughs> my daughter now is, on a Monday, will be like, so... Are you here this week? Where are you going this week? <laughs> um, we have a slow cooker, so I'm really good about if I'm going to go away for the night, I'll put the slow cooker on in the morning so when they come home from, from school and work, there's dinner all ready for them and stuff. So I kind of cheat in some ways. Um, it's hard and there's lots of things that I'm doing badly. I do feel like I've got two jobs and I'm doing them both not yeah. particularly well. So um, it's really nice that people think I'm doing them well. <laughs> what is the sort of things that you like to do in your spare yeah, time? Yeah, so I love cycling, um, I lo but not like serious cycling. I like 
like pootering around cycling type thing. I've got an e-bike, so not much effort goes into it. Yeah. And I love playing board games. Um, yeah. And I, I love Lego. I, I'm obsessed with Lego. Yeah. I've got a very large <laughs> Lego collection. Um, and so, yeah, th those are the kinds of things that I want to do. My daughter, on the other hand, wants to learn how to sew. Um, we do have a sewing machine because I wanted to learn how to sew once. And my friend and I bought a sewing machine and somehow I ended up with custody of the sewing machine and mm. then, then brought it to New Zealand. And, and Eve was like, oh, we've got a sewing machine. So I, we, we've bought a pattern the other day. I learned that patterns come in different sizes and you need to check the size because we got the wrong size. But anyway, that's been resolved now. And yeah, we bought some material and so she wants to have a go. So Is I've she following in your first footsteps in terms of a science career? No, no, definitely not. No, um, no she's very interested in music and uh, arts and theatre and stuff, and now it seems dressmaking. Not so. that they're mutually exclusive, of course. No, no. Um, no, she's she's quite good at maths, it seems, but her dad's a mathematician. The good thing is we've got different surnames, so for quite, like, at primary school, uh, everyone knew I was her mum, but when she moved to intermediate school, I kind of kept a really low profile, mm. and her form teacher was the drama teacher who had no idea who I was, so it was fantastic, until I turned up to do an, an, a, um, you know, like, go on a school trip, and the science teacher saw me, and she was like, oh, my, you know, she obviously had words with the yeah. drama teacher afterwards going, I can't believe Susie Wells is one of like your parents of yeah. one of your children. Anyway, and then my cover was blown. Um, but when we when she moved to high school, uh, I kind of tried to, to stay away. It hasn't really worked quite quite so well. And the other day, apparently, they were doing some like daily quiz, and I was like one of the questions in the quiz. <laughs> yeah, our cover was blown because this question came up, and then Eve's form teacher was like, "Oh, Eve, it's your mum," and he was just like, "Oh man." Oh, everyone knows. Yeah. Anyway, Interesting, it's hard uh, being a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what, for sure. Yeah. Um, so in science communication, at the Department of Science Communication, we are, our, our motto is the, the Center for Science and Storytelling. So one question that I had for you is, do you have an origin story? Is there a sort of a discrete moment in your, your history or your past that um, really sort of defines your career as an expert in microbiology and bioluminescence in particular? It's partly being a goth as a child or as a teenager. So, you know, you're supposed to like kind of death and destruction and I was yeah. reading Edgar Allan Poe and various things like this. Either I picked it up or somebody gave me the Fireside Book of Deadly Diseases and... <laughs> As you do. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I was just, oh, my God, I found it absolutely fascinating. You know, these, like, tales of tuberculosis and plague. And I remember at the time and many years afterwards thinking, what would it be like to live in those times? Mm. And now we don't have to imagine, although it's not, <laughs> it's not what I thought it was going to be. So, so I read those books and I just thought, wow, this is kind of amazing. Um, I want to know, I want to understand more about how, you know, how bacteria and viruses work and I was quite good at biology and so I, I ended up going to university to do biology but the more microbiology courses I took the more I just like oh got sucked in yeah absolutely sucked in and I still find it uh, just so do you remember the moment where you sort of first heard about bioluminescence if you don't know bioluminescence is this chemical reaction that glowing creatures use to make light um I've always been that kid who loved glowing stuff like I had all the stars on my ceiling and things right that, yeah. yeah so I was that kid um apparently I don't remember this so I grew up in South Africa and my mum said I used to be fascinated by the outdoor tap so we were about f I was about four when we moved and she said you were always like you know hanging out there mm. um 
something to do with something glowing that was living there. I don't remember that. Um, but so I've always loved, like, you know, the idea of fireflies and, and stuff. Again, it's just, it's quite mesmerising. Actually, during my, during my degree, I got my first glimpse of the science of using light uh, when I got to um, engineer plants to glow in the dark. So using the firefly enzyme. And it was just like, oh, my God, that's so cool. <laughs> and then when I was looking for a PhD, there was a PhD project that was all about making bacteria glow as like pollution sensors. And I was like, that's quite cool. Yeah. I'd quite like to have a PhD in making bacteria glow. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what I did. And then I guess through the process of have doing my PhD, I kind of realized you could turn that into a job, which if you'd said to me as a kid, <laughs> you'll have a job making things glow in the dark, I'd be like, really? Yeah. <laughs> It actually wasn't until I started coming to the New Zealand regularly that that I got to see bioluminescence properly. Yeah. And then it became, because uh, my husband's a New Zealander, so the first year he brought me over, he was like, all right, going to take you to Waitomo. And I just was blown away. And I try to get back every year because it's just, I still, I mean, this is it. I've been working with bioluminescence now for 20-odd years. And I still... I just don't tire of it. Like when yeah. things are going badly, the 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 thing that makes me most ex, you know um, excited is just to go and sit in the lab with a flask of glowing bacteria and just yeah, swirl yeah. them around. And it's yeah. just there's something really calming and just I'm just yeah I'm kind of still uh, this is I hope this isn't uh, this is not an inappropriate question, but I'm just wondering about is this, is your hair a, an homage <laughs> to the bioluminescence? Uh, it's the, it's basically message? the closest I can get to glowing in the dark. Okay. I actually I I fluoresce under UV light because it's bleached, um, so it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> That's passion. That's the, nice the, passion. The hair was purely, again, as a gothy teenager, I went through lots of different colours, mostly kind of pinks and purples. So I went to the hairdresser and said, I, want, I, I wanted a blue fringe. Yeah. And she looked at me and she went, not with your complexion. <laughs> She's like, no, nah, won't work. Uh, and so she kind of put it this colour and then it's been 21 years now, this ah, colour. So okay. it's not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> My hairdresser is kind of like, I can't believe it's still like, and it's in such good condition. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, so you've become obviously a, a very sort of high profile public face in New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in New Zealand? You said that your partner's a Kiwi, and um, I would imagine that's part of the story. Yeah. But, but what about the, how did you land at the University of <laughs> Auckland and, you know, that, that, that sort of uh, backstory? Yeah, so he, um, so as I say, he's a mathematician, and he went over to the UK to do his PhD. And so we met, uh, as he'd just finished his PhD, we kind of met through mutual friends. And then he kind of stayed, and, I mean, I presume that was sort of partly my fault, Um and things were going really well. At some point, we came, we did a trip to New Zealand and Australia just to sort of check things out. And it was like, nah, nothing really going on. Um, so we kind of thought, I thought we were sort of settled in the UK. And then we had a baby, just like some gene just got turned on. And he wanted her to grow up in New Zealand with sand between the toes. <laughs> and so he, and then he got offered a job at the University of Auckland. And so we were like, oh, geez, uh, how are we going to do this? Um, so I ended up applying for a fellowship um, and coming over with kind of the promise of a job. Uh, everybody in the UK thought I was crazy that I was committing career suicide, which on reflection I pretty much was. Um, and I think if we'd realised how hard it was going to be for me to do science here, we wouldn't have come. But it's come with some kind of benefits that we had never anticipated. Um, yeah. So, yeah. 
So um, I guess along those lines, how do you think it, uh, it sort of compares um, to other places in the world being a, a woman in science in New Zealand versus the UK or South Africa? Or the same biases exist everywhere. So I think New Zealand is a, is a lot smaller, so I don't know whether these biases are worse here, but it's been really, really hard, um, continues to be really, really, really hard. An amazing study was released uh, just before the pandemic. So we have this thing here called the PBRF, which is every six years or something, every academic in New Zealand gets basically rated um, and then if you're an A, your institution gets a certain amount of money. If you're a B, they get less. And if you're a C, they get even less. And uh, so we have this incredible data set of, uh, of people's ranks, of all sorts of things. Um, and looking at that data set, they basically, some researchers in Canterbury showed that women will, on average, earn two hundred dollars to $400,000 less than their male counterparts throughout their career, even if they are at the same grade. We get appointed at a lower level. We don't get pay rises the same. And it was really interesting reading that paper because I ended up sitting down and, and going through my career. And everything they talked about has happened to me. So I've, you know, I've been denied pay rises uh, when it's really clear I should have got them. And like this is just the system is there, and the, and everybody goes, oh no no, we're not biased. It's like the data shows otherwise. Actually, there was a really interesting paper released quite. Um, recently that showed that men are incredible feminists to young women and they'll really like support them and boost their careers um, and then as soon as women become their equals then they will do everything they can <laughs> to kind of stop that um, so it's really amazing and so you get these this generation of young women who go I've never no, it's not sexist it's amazing and then they reach 40 and they go oh bollocks mm. um, yeah so several of us have had that kind of oh bollocks <laughs> moment yeah. Uh, yeah, so no, it's, it's not easy. I mean, and it's a really hard thing to point out because the, the point is it's not just men. Men and women are all biased. Um, yeah. you know, and this goes down to all of the things we instill in, you know, that society instills in us all from a very early age, which is one of the reasons I have kept my hair pink. So bear with me because <laughs> this, this isn't linked. It's all about who we think is an expert, who we think does a job. You know, like when you say the word surgeon, if a picture of a man immediately jumps into your head, that's a bias that's been put there from a very early age. And so I started dyeing my hair because I wanted it and I kind of kept it because people were like, oh, this is amazing. Kids see you and they go, you're not what a scientist look like. And then as I progressed through my career, I realized that I wasn't what my colleagues thought a scientist looked like either. Yeah. And so keeping it was all about being a really visible reminder to everyone around me that they have biases. Every time they look at me and they say, you shouldn't be a scientist or you shouldn't be an expert, yeah. it's like a really visual reminder that that's not true. And if we have that about people's hair color, we have that of people's gender, we have it about their ethnicity, we have these are just biases that are there and we have to smash them. And you only do that. I really, I really appreciate that and I and I sympathize with that actually because um, I mean I'm a gay scientist I guess <laughs> I'm not quite as visible necessarily as as um, as you might might imagine but I think people have a lot of stereotypes in terms mm. of what scientists are and um, gay scientists are, re are really you know the, this oftentimes not really sort of part of the picture or the mm. portraits of of um, uh, people in the science profession um, so I 
I think that you've done really important work just in terms of sort of making yourself visible as a, as a minority, as a woman uh, <laughs> in, in this work. The, the, the thing that's really important to me um, is that we are our authentic selves. I just really firmly believe when we bring our whole selves to our work, it benefits from that. And not just our work benefits, but our, you know, our workplace benefits. Yeah, yeah. And I have so many people who are kind of like, you know, disturbed by my dress sense and my shoes. And it's like none of those things have anything to do <laughs> with my ability yeah. to do science. They are just, they're an expression of me. Yeah. And if that upsets you, it's a, you need to reflect on why that upsets you, yeah. <laughs> not take it out on me. It's actually something it's telling you something about you and how you've been raised. Um, and so I'm just, I'm all in for, yeah. I want everyone to express themselves and be their true selves. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll be happier as a result too. You're listening to Smart Talk, featuring a session from the New Zealand International Science Festival held in Ōtipoti, Dunedin in July 2021. Associate Professor Susie Wiles is talking to Jessie Baring about her career Although Susie was a major public figure before COVID-19, this event has nudged her even further into the spotlight. So you were, I think, you know, the right person at the right time for <laughs> this crisis that has emerged over the past um, year and a half or so with, with COVID. Was there a moment that you, you <laughs> sort of recognized the, the timeliness of your role? Yeah. While COVID has been the way that most people have come to know me. This is a role that I've played in New Zealand yeah. for a long time now. So for the last 10 years, I've been really keen on learning how to communicate science in different ways to the different audiences. And so whenever there's been a microbiology related kind of crisis, I have got, I've got a reputation as being somebody who a journalist can call. I'll answer my phone. I will try to explain stuff to them in sentences they will understand. Um, and so I've done this for, does anybody remember the bon, um, the Fonterra botulism scare? So I spent like, oh my God, it felt like weeks and weeks just talking to journalists behind the scene about what botulism was and all the questions that we needed answers to and stuff. I did the same with Zika. I did the same with Ebola. Like, so this is a role that I've played before. And the first time I heard of COVID, I was actually in the UK. So I was in the UK from mid-December um, to mid-January um, as it started. Um, and this alert kind of popped up and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But I was on holiday, just my daughter and I. And I was like, no, Susie, put it away. Just, you're on holiday. Just forget about that. So I didn't do any thinking at all about that until I arrived home. And within a day, my phone was ringing and I was like, oh, okay, okay, yep, let's have a look at this. And of course, at that time, whoa, we didn't really know very much. So I remember just like, okay, here we go. This is like, like you know, it's my job to help the journalists understand this and, and figure out how to report it, which at that stage was, well, we don't know very much at the moment. Um, but within two weeks, it was like, I remember my first interview on Breakfast TV was basically, well, we don't know very much. Uh, doesn't at the moment, you know, the data we're getting suggests it's all the data we're being told about suggests that it's not human to human transmission. So, I mean, it's, you know, two weeks later, it was like, holy moly, this is escalating <laughs> fast. And then I remember at that. So by the end of January, it was like, oh, geez. So I, in, in February, I, I was planning... So it's February last year, I was planning on sorting out, writing some papers. I had like lots of research that we've done that I needed to get written up. And so I completely reorganized my schedule so that I was in work twice a week, but three days a week I was working from home. And within like two weeks, those three days were, were just spent basically trying to keep up with COVID and so talk to journalists. 
And I just reached the stage where I just, I just sort of made this like, do you know what? The papers can wait. This is really, really important. And so I'm going to keep doing my teaching and I'm going to keep looking after my students. But the other stuff yeah. is going to have to wait because I need, you know, and I, and I was driven by kind of two things. One is that people don't act in their best interests when they panic. And the other is that uh, communities that work together um, come through disasters the best. And so I just saw my role as I want everyone to understand what is happening, what's at stake here, and to basically not panic and to work for each other. Yeah. And so I'm just going to do whatever I can to help that. Yeah. Uh, and it just took over. So would you mm. say that was the most important message that you were trying to deliver to the public? I wanted everybody to understand what information the government was working from. So that, because it was really clear to those of us in infectious diseases that we were going to have to do something drastic. Like it was clear that the borders were going to have to close, that, you know, if it was here, we were going to have to do something drastic. And so I wanted everyone to understand how things, and things were changing so fast and continue to change, right? So I just wanted everyone to understand how things were changing, uh, what this meant. And so if the government acted how I wanted them to act, just uh, like what this would mean and what, the, you know, so that so so that when the Prime Minister said, right, we're moving into alert level four in two days time, everyone was like, sure, yep, yeah, awesome. <laughs> like, because they understood why it was going to happen. Yeah. I just sort of saw that as my job, really, is just to help with that. So you've said that one of your most important collaborative exercises has been with Toby Morris with the, the animation, the, the visualization of the, um, the sort of central message in terms of what you were communicating with the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about, about sort of how that came to be? Yeah, it kind of happened more or less by accident. From middle of January, I was doing TV and radio. And one of the things that I dislike about doing TV and radio is that, you know, you've, you're, you're either being interpreted by a journalist or you're only like got a snippet. So people yeah. will hear a small quote. So you can't, you can't convey everything that you're thinking or point to what you're reading and stuff. That's why I was writing for the spin-off. So Toby Manhai, who's the editor there, just sent me a message one day going, if there's anything you want to write, pop it here. Yeah. Um, and so I started writing. And I just, I love that because I could put everything that I was thinking and, you know, and I could link to the stuff that I was reading so that everybody else could see what, how my thinking was changing and why I was making the suggestions that I was making. Um, and so I was doing this, I was writing for them, uh, it was kind of, it was getting a bit crazy. Uh, and then I was trying to write about, yeah, how things were changing. And I saw this um, tweet that basically talked about this concept of flatten the curve. So how, um, you know, if you have this disease come all at once, it can overwhelm your ability to look after everybody. And so if you kind of slow down cases, you can kind of keep it at a manageable level. And so I wanted to write about this concept, uh, but the graphic that I saw was just awful. Because, uh, of course, it was done by a scientist, right? Um, you know, it, and there's sometimes it's great, but, you know, this is not our key skill. Uh, so I just sent a message to Toby Manhire saying, would, did he think Toby Morris would be interested in doing yeah, something? Toby. And the reason I picked Toby Morris is, well, I knew that he worked for the spinoff, but I've long admired his work because he has done... He's done amazing things with really hard topics around inequality and everything, you know, in this beautiful illustrated way. And he really makes you care. Yeah. And I thought he would be awesome to like, because I, what I wanted to show, that what that graphic was showing is our actions can change the course of pandemic. So I wanted people to feel like their actions could help. And so within an hour, Toby and I, who had never met before, were on the phone. 
I sent him the tweet. I, I was like, this is, I, it would be awesome if it was a GIF and could it do this and could it have that? And then like within a few hours, he was like, like this? And I'm like, yeah, like that. <laughs> and then we released that a few, like, I don't know, a few days later. Um, and it just went do lally. And then that was kind of the start of yeah. what has been the most amazing collaboration of my yeah. working life. Yeah. 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 And it's and it's incredible. So we've done about forty together now. It's slowed it's slowed down right down now because uh, they basically uh, ended up being shared with the WHO, and somebody from the WHO comms team got in touch with the spinoff and said, "Hmm, <laughs> these look really interesting." Uh, and so Toby and his team now do stuff with this with this the is WHO. The flatten the curve. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. so they've so basically everything that Toby and I've done essentially we kind of workshop through things and then they've ended up being adapted by the WHO right. and, and so they've just been seen by millions and millions of people. It's okay. kind of amazing, really. Um, I know everybody, many of you have questions um, that they would like to ask Susie, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But my final question for you, I suppose, is about conspiracy theories, <laughs> and um, I guess what could be known as the Luciferase um, <laughs> problem or issue. Could you tell us a little bit about what that has been like? So if you haven't heard of this conspiracy theory, its name is Luciferase, uh, and it's, uh, it's to do with Bill Gates microchipping the world, and, uh, and he's going to do it by making us all glow in the dark. <laughs> oh, where do you even go? So it's kind of fascinating. The first I heard about it was people started calling me a Satanist and that I was like the New Zealand arm of this conspiracy theory. And I was like, what? What? Anyway, so luciferase is the name of the enzymes that bioluminescent creatures use to make light. Um, and it's named after Lucifer, which is the Latin word for Venus. Um, it means light bringer, which... So you can see why bioluminescent creatures have got enzyme called luciferases because they literally bring light. Um, and uh, so being obsessed with luciferases, um, and so the, so the enzyme's called luciferase, and the thing that they convert uh, into light is called a luciferin. So many years ago, I started a little company called Luciferin Limited, which is a play on the word luciferin. We thought it was so funny. I still think it's funny. Uh, and so, of course, I've got this company called Lucif Luciferin Limited, which does nothing. The whole reason I started it was because in 2011, I was working with an Australian um, animator to make animations about bioluminescent creatures and uses of light in science. And it was driving me crazy that I was applying for little grants from like societies and things to do science communication. The money would go to the university, and of course, the only person who needed paying was the animator. And it would take like four months for the university to pay this damn animator, and it was driving me insane. It's like these people are self-employed. This is ridiculous. So I started this company as a way to put the money into to pay them without having to go through university processes. Anyway, so it then people found found it, and the and because it's Lucy Farron, that means I'm a Satanist and. <laughs> The conspiracy comes from the fact that somebody has mined the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's grants and they found a grant from a few years ago that was looking, it was kind of like a gene therapy grant. And the thing about bioluminescence is it's an amazing tool in science that allows you to, to, to see things. So in the reason we use it in my research is because we make bacteria glow in the dark, they only glow when they're alive, and we can put them inside of animals and we can track them using really sensitive cameras because they glow and that light travels through flesh and skin. It's kind of bloody amazing. You know, and it, and it, um, 
it means we do the experiments much more humanely. You know, we uh, we use less animals. It's like really cool reasons for using it. Um, and so they, <laughs> so these people have found these papers about this technique, where people will tag cells with these luciferase enzymes to see where they go. Um, or they'll kind of engineer cells to go to a particular place and then they'll use the luciferase to see whether they got there. And so they found this and gone, see, look, he's trying to engineer people to glow. And it's like, no, no, like you don't, like that's really hard. Actually, it's really easy to make people glow. You just tattoo them with fluorescent stuff. Like, so there's like a totally easy way to do this. You don't have to go there, you know, the whole trouble of using luciferases, which won't work inside of us, really. I mean, they won't be bright enough to see anyway. Yeah. Um, so it just became this kind of, yeah, anyway, people think this and now I'm a Satanist <laughs> and I'm engineering people. And it's like, honestly, you're, you've all got phones in your pockets. Like Bill Gates does not need to tag you. You're already tagged. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, that, that was a really... I don't, I don't know where else to go with that one. <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, what you hear of people that sort of are very resistant to trusting the science, I guess. Mm. But what's at the core of that? No, and I think you're far more qualified to answer this than, you, than I am. But it is a scary time, and we are facing something we've never faced before, and we're being disrupted in a way we've never been disrupted before. What I really reflect on, though, is that there are communities that have been disrupted by all sorts of things, war and stuff like that. But the vast majority of people don't have that in their lives, and now suddenly they're experiencing something really quite out of their control. And so there has to, like, I, I don't know, this, there has to be a conspiracy. There has to, you know, this can't just be the way it is. Yeah. Um, and we're just, you know, the reason we're in this pickle is because it's being so badly managed by countries that are putting us all at risk. And so I guess people will grasp at stuff. Um, and the other really clear thing is that this is all happening in a quite interesting time in our history where the mainstream media has been added to with these incredible social media sites that uh, use algorithms to either show you what they want you to see or what uh, you they think you want to see. And there are people who are actively making up fake stuff because they're trying to sell – I mean, they're making money out of it. Like the, the anti-vax um, – industry is massive absolutely massive and so we've got this sort of coming together of kind of fear of people being in a vulnerable position of people making up shit to frighten them to, so that they can make money and then we've got this way of sharing information that we just did not have before yeah. and so it's just like this awful kind of melting pot mm -hmm. that's killing people and it's really hard to you know when i start talking about how actually there's links between anti-vaccination and white supremacy you know people are like you know it's some kind of conspiracy theory it's like no that stuff's all real actually <laughs> you know there are people who don't want liberal democracies and they are doing everything they can to disrupt that and people are dying as a result and it's just like it's madness Associate Professor Susie Wiles is talking with Jesse Baring at the New Zealand International Science Festival, which was held in Dunedin in July. As questions from the audience weren't captured by a microphone, I'll summarise what each speaker asks. The first question comes from a woman who wants to know what the audience can do to play its part in the pandemic response. That's a great question. Um, so there's some really practical things, like did everybody scan in on the way here? Yeah, super. So doing that is really, really important because if we have an outbreak here, that's how we Raise kind of... Raise your hand if you did not. No. 
So please, you know, if you don't use the app, um, download it, turn on Bluetooth on your phone and in the app and use it. Scan everywhere because basically when we have an outbreak or a scare, you kind of need to have been doing it for two weeks already to get the benefit of it. So that's the thing we need everyone to do. The, the next thing we need everyone to do is to be encouraging our friends and family to get vaccinated. Um, and so if people have questions, you know, it's perfectly valid that people will have questions. We call people... Uh, vaccine hesitant. I don't think they're hesitant. I think they're curious. So if you're vaccine curious and you've got questions about vaccination, go to the right places to find information. The um, Immunisation Advisory Centre's website's really good. So go and kind of find out the answers to the questions that you have. Um, we know these vaccines are really safe and really effective and we're, you know, they're only going to work if we all kind of get them. Um, and if you have somebody who is um, basically is falling down the rabbit hole and starting to share crap about vaccines and stuff, talking to them about how misinformation spreads, how it's created by other people. You don't have to try and convince them about the information they're seeing, but talk to them about why they're seeing it. Um, you know, that there are, well, there's this amazing study that was recently done where they tracked about two thirds of the fake stuff about vaccines to 12 accounts in the US. They call them the disinformation dozen. Those 12 accounts have got about 20 companies associated with them. They have an annual turnover of 36 million US dollars. And even though they break all of the um, terms and conditions of the social media platforms where they put their misinformation, because of the size of the accounts, they're worth about a billion dollars a year to the social media platforms. So there's a real incentive for the social media platforms not to shut them down because they earn money. And there's a real incentive for the people to make misinformation because they sell stuff. Um, so that's the reason why we're seeing things. And what we're seeing in, in New Zealand and everywhere around the world, actually, is people are taking that misinformation and they're repackaging it for, an, for their local audience. So here we have got people who are taking that stuff and they're just, you know, adding a little Kiwi twang to it to make it appeal to us. But it's coming from these people who are making massive amounts of money from it. Um, and so I think if, we under, if people understand that, if people understand how social media algorithms work, you can start to see that we're being misled, you know, um, because they have an agenda that they're trying to push. And that agenda is going to result in people's deaths. If anybody downplays the seriousness of the pandemic and the virus, that is a clear sign that they are somebody who's trying to mislead you. Because, and, and I don't understand how anyone can fool for this nowadays because we've got so much evidence that it's, it's really it's serious. You know, it's, we've just passed four million deaths. And that is an underestimate because most countries aren't even recording all the deaths. So this is, this is not influenza. We know it's not influenza. We've known it's not influenza for a long time. Um, and so if you're somebody who's vaccine curious or hesitant and you think that you're really healthy and you may be really healthy. So, you know, you've got a really good immune response and you don't normally get sick and you, and you feel like you don't, you know, you're not so sure about the vaccine um, because if you get it, you'll be okay. What you have to understand is you have to, you know, if you get it, you you need to get it for your body to mount an immune response. And even if you may recover, you will spread that to someone else and you may well kill them. So even if you think you're not going to be affected, you need to get vaccinated because we know that that does lower how infectious people are. And that's going to count for all of us. So that's the big thing we can do nowadays is just encourage everyone to get vaccinated. If you've been vaccinated, tell everyone about it, you know. We have to understand that there are forces acting against us. You know, they're trying to disrupt us. And that's really distressing because people are going to die as a result. 
If I might give voice to one of the most common sort of sources of reticence, I think, with getting the vaccine, it would be that it's not been a, it's not been around a long long enough time to sort of to sort of gauge the long term implications of getting it. So, what would you say to that? Yeah. So, and that's a great great question. So, there's two things that people I think are most people are most worried about. So, one is that that it hasn't been around for a very long time. So, what are the long term consequences? Um, and then the other is that it was they were developed really fast. Yeah. So. Um, so the, the, in terms of being developed really fast, we have to understand that the mRNA technology has got like 30 years of, of lab science behind it, right? In the past, it's taken like 10 to 15 years to get you know, any, any drug really from the lab to the clinic. And that's because um, there are a series of processes that have to be gone through, like all the clinical trials and you know, stage one, stage two, stage three, and all of the regulation, um, getting it through the regulators. And these processes are all done one by one, uh, one after the other with massive gaps in the middle while everybody decides who's going to pay for the next stage. So what we've shown is that you can speed that process up to a year when money is no object and you basically do these processes in a really time-efficient way. So those are not reasons to be frightened. They're reasons to be angry that we take 15 years to get drugs to people when it doesn't need to take that long. Yeah. So I would spin that around completely. In terms of them not being in people long enough, so that's, that is true. Obviously, the, the vaccines only started going into clinical trials you know, just over a year ago. But there's no reason to suspect that they would have long-term consequences. We know from all of the other vaccines that we use that it's the short-term consequences that we watch out for, right? So if you're allergic to one of the ingredients, you know, within half an hour, we'll know that. So what we're seeing are the really rare things that happen, but they happen within days to weeks. They don't, it doesn't, there's, so there's nothing that would, ex that we would expect. You know, we, there's no evidence from any of the other vaccines that they have an impact on our fertility, on any of those kinds of things. So there's no reason to suspect that for the other ones. And frankly, the need is so great. Like we know the consequences of the virus. We know the long COVID. What we don't know yet, but really suspect is that they're gonna be medium term consequences. So impacts on the heart, impacts on the brain, impacts on blood vessels within the next two to five years. Yeah. Um, and we don't account, you know, none of that is being accounted for. So I find it absolutely astonishing those people who are spreading the, we don't know enough about the vaccine stuff, when we know that what we, we know do know long, about the virus term, is yeah. so much worse. Yeah. Like, yes, there are, you know, depending on the vaccine, there are little things that are popping up um, in small numbers, yeah. but we know those same consequences happen to people with the, long with the virus yeah. in like orders of magnitude more um, yes. people. So it's, it's, there's something about us as a species <laughs> where we have no concept of risk. Yeah. Like, you know, every day we get in a car, one of the riskiest things we could do, right? And, and yet we're terrified of sp spiders and sharks. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, that's play, you know, that plays out really badly for us when you're in a situation where we know what the risky behaviour is and we, you know, <laughs> yeah. and we do stuff that actively makes it more risky. The next audience question for Susie Wiles is, what can you do to improve the place of women in science? Well, so... Uh, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, one of the good things is that um, uh, I'm, I'm considered a troublemaker. 
Um, so there are things that I'm trying to do um, around just not being silent about it. So agitating for various things. Um, I, you know, not being one of those women who pulls the ladder up after them. This is that one of the most depressing things. And actually, I have a, I have a group of friends, and we have made a pact that if any of us see one of us becoming that woman who starts to go, well, in my day. Uh, you know, and pulls up the ladder, then we'll basically slap each other. So, because um, I think you you got to do that. Uh, yeah, and and this is, stuff is hard. Um, it's kind of one of the reasons why I don't do so much stuff in schools anymore. Trying to cheerlead girls into science. Actually, we don't like girls. Girls are totally competent, capable. They like science. It's the dealing with the biases that we have to do. So uh, that's the kind of... So I would, if I've got limited time, which I do have, I will try and spend it um, addressing the places where those biases come in. And so that's being visible as a person and going, these are the things that we encounter. It's one of the reasons I've been really open about the harassment that I get as a, as a result of the pandemic. You know, we know that women are constantly undermined you know, underappreciated. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just see, I see this all the time, you know, when I make comments alongside my male colleagues, I'm the one who's not an expert, <laughs> whereas the physicists amongst me, you know, are the experts somehow in infectious diseases. Um, so, you know, just calling these things out. It's like, I don't want sympathy. I just want everyone to see these biases so we can address them, right? So that's the sort of thing I'm trying to do. I'm also open for ideas. So if you've got anything in particular you'd like me to do, then um, as I say, I'm a troublemaker, so uh, let me know. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. A member of the audience is keen to hear from Susie Wiles about whether she had researched bioluminescence in the marine world. It was only at the beginning of the pandemic that I saw phosphorescence for the first time. So that's the, you know, the glowing waves. Oh, so cool. So it turns up there's some on the Hibiscus Coast and it comes at about the same time every year. And there's a Facebook group, group that basically go out and say, it's here tonight. Um, and so then I go, right, we're going for a drive. And we drive for an hour to go and see bioluminescence. And so, yeah, that's the first time I've I've done that. Um, I've got colleagues in, in the US who... Um, work at Monterey Bay Aquarium and they go down in these submersibles and they look at all these amazing little bioluminescent things. So I have visited them, but there's so much cool stuff. And the, and the, um, the bacteria that, uh, so I have a bacteria that I isolated to do art stuff and that comes from the bum of a fish because there's lots and lots of glowing bacteria in the ocean. So I have that in my freezer at, not at home, but at work. Um, <laughs> and so when I'm feeling particularly sad, I can bacteria get that out. from and, the bum of a fish, is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, so it's so cool. Can I tell you about this? <laughs> yes. So, um, so, bio, so bioluminescence has evolved lots of different times for lots of different reasons. And so like fireflies use it to find a mate. The anglerfish has got this glowing lure, that's bacteria, and that's basically to attract food. The uh, Hawaiian bobtail squid has got bacteria that it basically keeps in this amazing little light organ underneath it, and they kind of use it like as an, an invisibility cloak. But this bacteria that um, glows in the guts of fish, it's only been a few years ago that they've figured out why it does that. So it turns out that when they are in the ocean, they get um, eaten by um, these little zooplankton, so little like critters, um, microscopic critters. Uh, and so the really cool thing about bioluminescence um, in bacteria is that it's uh, so they so every little bacteria releases the signal 
Uh, and when they're in a confined space, the signal builds up. And then when there's enough of the signal, all the bacteria turn on their lights. So the point is they don't glow when there's not enough of them to be seen. So when they get eaten by this little critter, they can't kill them. So they start to multiply and then the signal starts to build up and then they start to glow. Mm. So now this little critter that was trying to eat them is basically glowing. And the, these scientists figured out that if they, put, if they had them in a tank, glowing versions or non-glowing versions, and they put a fish in the tank, the fish saw the glowing ones and ate them. So basically this little critter gets eaten mm. uh, and then as it gets digested, uh, the bacteria are released into the gut of the fish and the gut is full of nutrients and stuff. So they kind of, they're there, you know, the bacteria have now got access to nutrients and then at some point they get pooped out and then the cycle starts again, which I just think is awesome. Natural so selection <laughs> at work. Yeah, so they glow to get inside of a gut, a fish, gut of a fish. But they're very abundant and if you um, have some fish and you keep it kind of dampened in the, f in the fridge, it might start to glow because yeah. they will be there. <laughs> I just advise that you cook them well before you eat them then. Most of the audience questions for Susie Wiles at the New Zealand International Science Festival focused on COVID-19. She has asked, at the outbreak of the pandemic, did being actively involved in communication about it have any effect on your anxiety levels? Oh, uh, I didn't think about it at all. I was just like, all I could see was what was going to happen if we didn't act. And I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I felt ill all the time, really. So. Um, but I think you've written that it was a sort of a moral imperative for you to. Yeah. To yeah. sort of weigh in. There was no time to think. So I'm not even sure. Like I, I had this great um, conversation with my hairdresser when we came back out of our, um, you know, when, we, when we could finally get to the hairdresser, because I obviously needed to go to the hairdresser. <laughs> my roots were like that. Um, <laughs> And he just said, oh, it's been amazing. Like I've had the, you know, so he got the wage subsidy and he just, we just hung out and we cooked and we, and it was like, so people have had really different experiences too. And some people have really enjoyed stuff and others have not. And, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I was just so busy. I just, there's been no time to reflect. And it's almost worse now because I feel like when we we're in the thick of it, I kind of had a reason just to really focus my energies on communication. Now I'm expected to keep communicating and keep, keep keeping up with everything while getting back to doing every demand of my job, which was already kind of more than a full-time job. And so I feel worse now. I feel kind of busier now than then because I'm expected to do two things really well rather than yeah. like, you know, <laughs> letting the other one slide a bit. An audience member asked Susie what living with the virus in the future will be like. Does anybody remember what travel was like before 9-11? There'll be some people who probably weren't even born before 9-11. But... <laughs> so it did not go back to the way it was. So I think we are forever changed by this experience and there is no going back to the way things were. Things will be different. And so the question is, how different, how do we adapt to that? You know, what we've clearly seen is that socialized healthcare is really good. Like there are massive benefits. And so we should be doing more of that kind of stuff, right? At some point, we are going to have to do something with our borders. Uh, if that means we're learning to live with COVID will mean different things to different countries. So for us, learning to live with COVID might be, well, we have limits on who comes in and how they come in and we act like it's measles and we do contact tracing and we stamp it out and stuff. 
living, learning to live with a virus in the UK seems to be just let everybody die. So, you know, I think learning to live with a virus is a bit like lockdown. It's going to be one of those phrases that means different things to different, different people in different countries. Um, one of the things we have to be really mindful of is that uh, if going back to how we were before means just opening up the borders and people get sick, if we manage to get everybody we need to get vaccinated for the vaccine that's currently approved, that means a huge, a huge bit of our population, our children, are not going to be vaccinated. And we know that while they are less likely to get COVID and have bad effects, some of them still will, and those will probably be children with other comorbidities, which is a horrible word, but, you know, who have diabetes, who have other things, uh, who are vulnerable in other ways. They will many of them will die. And so I just don't think, I don't think, is tourism worth that much that we're going to sacrifice all our children? Like, I just, I don't think it is, right? So, and I know that people don't like me talking about things that aren't science but or, or infectious diseases, but what I would hope is that we've learned that we can make really drastic action really fast when there's need. We can act in an evidence-based way and we can do things for the collective good. So why will we not use those three lessons to address the other things that challenge us? Uh, we Around infectious diseases, around climate change. So, you know, I would hope that, that we have a new way of life that addresses the challenges that we are facing now and in the future. And it looks different and it looks different based on us looking after each other and not sacrificing our people to the consumerism gods. The final audience question seems like one which would only be posed in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Susie Wilde is asked if anyone who made contact wanted her to speak directly to someone in their family who is vaccine hesitant. Would she give someone a call to persuade them to get vaccinated? I did end up phoning a lady. <laughs> so her daughter got in touch and said, like, you said you would, would you do it? And I was like, sure, okay. Um, I was kind, it was a bit tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, so I rang her up. I was like, hi, it's Susie Wiles. And it all went really quiet. <laughs> and she's like, yes. And I said, so, and I just, you know, I hear that you've been doing this. And, you know, your daughter's a bit worried. She's, I've not been doing that. And I said, well, I've heard this. And she, I've not been doing that. I was like... Are you sure? Well, just to let you know that, you know, people around you are worried and this is how we should behave. And she was... <laughs> so I don't know whether I caused a massive problem in that family, but <laughs> it was quite funny. So I did. And I'm glad we live in New Zealand because I couldn't, uh, you know, if I had had like 10,000 people saying, please phone my parents, that would be... <laughs> that would have been quite hard. <laughs> but it's one of the things I love about New Zealand too, right? Um, is that kind of, yeah, <laughs> just like, sure, I'll phone your, phone your folks. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Susie. This has been a, a really interesting conversation with you. Um, and I, I actually, I, I won't ask my question because the woman in the back actually preempted my question, which was basically, can we aspire to have a, a zero COVID scenario in the future? Or is this something that we're going to be living with um, for our foreseeable lifetime? <laughs> But I think that you've answered that question um, pretty clearly. And I think point. we can do both. I think we can have a, we can have, we can treat it like measles rather than influenza. Right. Um, well, thank you. Please join me in uh, thanking. And
enthusiastic applause from the audience for Associate Professor Susie Wiles speaking to Associate Professor Jessie Baring at the New Zealand International Science Festival, which was held in Dunedin in July 2021. To hear more science content, listen to Our Changing World on RNZ National at 9pm on Thursdays. It's also available as a podcast on rnz.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Claire Kincannon for RNZ.